this is a good day, isn't it? It is. It's good for a lot of reasons. It's especially good because this is the day the Lord has made. And as he brings us together, he brings us together for his purpose. He desires to speak to you and me. And so I want to ask you to take your Bible and find John chapter 13. And in just a moment, I'm going to read three verses, beginning at verse 33. John chapter 13, verse 33. This is the third message in a series of studies we're, we're calling, Let's Go Be the Church. And we're giving careful and concentrated attention to what it means to be church. We have said it for years. Mike has said it as our farewell statement at the end of most of our services. But we want to explore this and go deeper with it. And so this message today is called Keeping It Real. Keeping It Real. John chapter 13, verse 33. Jesus is speaking. This is the last night before his crucifixion. And he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. That you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Father, thank you for your word. May the truth of it capture our hearts and our minds this morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We ask you to speak to each of our hearts, to teach us, to change us, that we might leave here emboldened and transformed a little bit more because of your activity in our soul. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we studied a message we called Doing Life Together, and we looked at the passage in Acts chapter 2 where Jesus has um, risen and the Holy Spirit has fallen. The Holy Spirit comes, and he inhabits his people for the first time through his Holy Spirit. And he had said that he was going to build the church. We'd studied that the week before. And that as he builds the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the church becomes a force, and the gates of hell where death is sheltered, where lost people are, are broken and damaged and blinded, that those gates cannot withstand the forward movement of the church. So what does it look like when a church is inhabited by Jesus Christ and is busting down the gates of hell? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, we read a description of the earliest church when the Holy Spirit was resident, when Jesus Christ was indwelling his people. And what did we find? We found people who were in Bible study together. They were sharing life together. They called it fellowship. They were breaking bread together. They were eating. Amen. We're going to do that shortly. They were eating together. It says they were praying together. And what's really interesting about this passage of Scripture is that when Jesus is, is alive in the church, what, what becomes prominent in that church is not the building, not the symbols that they wear or the words that they say, but what becomes prominent in that church is the life of Christ in his 
people. So in that passage of Scripture, we saw that last week. What it means to do life together means that Christ fills my life and he seeks out his life in other Christians. And I want to be with other Christians. I want to be where they are. I want to hang out with them. They're my spiritual family. But in that passage of Scripture, there was something else that, that you might have missed that occurs in the first verse, Acts 2.41, and the last verse of that passage, Acts 2.47. Listen to me. See if you can, you can pick out what we didn't talk about last week. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. We couldn't even fit that many in this room. 3,000 souls were added to them. And then we have the description of the church where the life of Jesus is. And at the end of the passage, verse 47, listen, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So at the beginning of the description, 3,000 are added and being saved. At the end of the passage, the Lord is adding to their number and they're being saved. Now, why is that significant? There was no structured outreach program. There was no book study on how to reach your neighbor for Christ. There was no evangelistic, organized evangelistic activity All that was happening at this particular moment was the church was being the church. Jesus and the life of Jesus in his people created such an intense lifestyle that the rest of the world fell into the group. They said, I I want that. I want to be a part of that. Now we in this church, not... I'm not talking about us at Wynn Baptist, but I'm saying in this church that you and I are part of today, church with a big C, church all over the nation in the Western world, we have to rack our brains and figure out every single way we can to attract people to get here. We use every consumer technique known to modern marketing in order to get people to plug into the church. What did they do? They were just church. The thing that draws people to Christ are the people in whom Christ lives. And in that relationship, in that, in that fellowship, in that Bible study, in that praying together, in that eating together, the world's out there looking at it, and they're saying, I want that. I want to be a part of a group like that. And so they just loved each other so differently. Now, this is exactly what Jesus says in the, the last verse that I read to you in verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Who's going to know? All are going to know. So Jesus turns to the world, not Christians. But in effect, he, he turns to the world and says, there's a way you can determine whether or not someone is a Christian, whether or not someone is a follower of me. Not by their symbols, not by the size of their crowds, not by their worship services or their political influence or power, not even by the way they love non-Christians. Now, we should love non-Christians, shouldn't we? I mean, I can show you all over the Bible. It says we should love our neighbor. The Good Samaritan, who's my neighbor? It's, it's, it doesn't matter. The question is, are you going to be the neighbor? You, we should do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. I mean, there's all kinds of scripture that says we should love lost people. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But Jesus did not say, you're going to know these people are Christians by the way they love you. He says, you're going to know they're Christians by the way they love each other. 
You see the difference? Muslims and Hindus and secularists. And he says, how can you spot a Christian? He says, here's how you can spot a Christian. By the love he or she has for other Christians. And when we do this, we will change the world around us. We won't need billboards. We won't need mass direct mail. We won't need a television program or even live streaming. People are going to want to be here. They're going to want to be part of it. When we don't do this, Jesus is giving your lost neighbor or your friend or your family member permission to come to you and say, I don't think you're a Christian because you don't love other Christians. I have a couple questions I want to, uh, to pose this morning that I think help us understand what it means to keep it real. Here's the first question. Why did Jesus call this a new commandment? Why did Jesus call this a new commandment? Have you ever thought about that? He said, this is, this is a, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. A new commandment. He'd already told them to love everybody. Earlier in Matthew 22, he does it in Mark 12 also, but in Matthew 22, he says in verse 37, in answer to the question, what's the greatest greatest law? How can you sum up the law? What's the greatest law in the commandment? If you can only keep one, what is it? Jesus told him two. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. Listen carefully. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He'd already said that. So what was new about this one? Well, notice what he said the first time. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the new commandment, it changes. It's not about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's loving as I have loved you. I'm not talking about loving people the way you love yourself, the golden rule, do unto others as they do to you. I mean, or, you know... <laughs> He's not talking about that, loving people as you love yourself. He's saying, I want you to love as I have loved you. I've, I've just raised the bar. Some of you don't love yourself very well. I'm not, I'm not going to point at anybody, but some of y'all don't love yourself very well. But Jesus says, no, no, I, I want to raise the bar. I've got a new commandment for you. I want you to love as I have loved you. And I want you Christians especially to love one another like this. So the question then becomes, how does he love us? When over and over again throughout the New Testament, the Bible emphasizes the costly nature, the sacrificial nature of Jesus' love for you and me. Even a casual reading of Scripture, and, and this comes out. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, okay, that's what husbands are to do. Love your wives. Now think with me. How did Christ love the church? I want to know about that. Because he said he wants me to love you and he wants you to love me as I have loved all of you. So how does Christ love the church? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Everything. All in. Everything that he was. If you're giving your life, there's nothing else to give, is there? And so it's costly. It's sacrificial. Love each other as I have loved you. He just raised the bar really high. Here's another example. And this is John. 
John's the one that wrote John 13. Well, he, later he wrote a letter in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Do you see it? Sacrifice, cost. That's how I loved you. That's how he loves you and me. And as a consequence of that, he says, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's just another way of saying what Jesus said. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And John, later, he, he sort of interprets that. He says, we know love because he laid down his life for us. It's sacrificial. He gave everything. He didn't hold anything back. He said, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Who would die for you? Who do you know that would die for you besides your mama? And you may need to talk to her first. I mean, when you're little, she wouldn't think twice about it. But some of y'all grown up. Who would die for you? How many people do you know that really have got your back? And they love you. They are passionate about you. And you mess up. You say the wrong things. You have bad days. And, and you don't see what they get. They just love you. How many how many people are in your life like that? I want to be a part of a group like that, don't you? I want to be a part of a group like that, don't you? And so Texas thought, um, if you were to keep reading past 1 John 3.16, where he says, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Listen to the next two verses. It's not on the screen. Just listen. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, not his goods, his heart. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's something here that's being made. It, the commandment works something like this. Like Jesus, you'll love people like Jesus. You'll love someone so much that you would give them your life. Now, a couple chapters later, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that when they give their life for their friends, lay down their life for their friends. So Jesus says to love as I loved you. Ultimately, that means I'm committed to someone with my entire life. Now, if I'm going to give them the biggest thing, everything else gets easy. That's the point. Helping out, sacrificially stepping into a situation to help someone forgiving them for the umpteenth millionth time, showing compassion for them, even though they may not have shown compassion for you. Uh, whatever the scenario, all those things, that's little stuff because you have committed your life to that person. Everything else is smaller than that. So Jesus had already committed his life to these men in chapter 13. So the other things came easily. There are a couple examples I want you to see in this chapter. I'm just going to refer to them. You can go back and read the chapter on your own. This is the last night Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. This is when they have the Last Supper. He washes the feet of the disciples. And, and some unusual things take place on this particular evening leading up to this verse that I read to you. The love of Jesus is, first of all, unlimited. There are no limits to his love. In John chapter 13, his hour had come that he should them to the end. No limits. There was not a point in which Jesus looked at these men and said, I've had it. Enough. 
A normal worldly love has limits. I will love you as long as you look right or act right or I feel like it, but otherwise, if you cross me, I'm going to throw you under the bus. I'm not talking about what happens out there. I'm talking about what happens in here. And so, in contrast to that, the love of Jesus, and he says to love as he loved, the love of Jesus is unlimited, loving all the way to the end. There are no limits to it. It's also unselfish. His love is not only unlimited, it's also unselfish. In this passage of Scripture, you can go back and read it, it says that he washed the feet of the disciples. No one else. That was a servant's job. Somebody else had to do that. When, um, when you lived in that day and time, you wore sandals, you walked the streets. In the streets of urban areas, they threw everything out in the street. They threw the trash in the street. They threw the wash pots in the sink. Unspeakable things were in the street. And your feet are walking in that. And so when people gathered to eat, one of the things that had to be done was they washed their feet. Why was that necessary? Because they didn't eat at chairs upright. They ate in a reclining position leaning on one elbow, reaching with a piece of bread, sopping up food with the other hand. And so at some point, if you can imagine a bunch of people leaning on their elbow, going around a table, somebody's feet is in the wrong place. And I'm telling you, I want those feet clean. And so they would assign a servant when people came in who would wash their feet. Jesus and the disciples are gathering for the Passover meal, and nobody has washed the feet. This isn't their home. It's a it's a borrowed space. They're going to have this meal. There is no servant to wash the feet. None of the disciples stand up to do it. What does Jesus do? He takes off his robe. He puts a towel around his waist. And one by one, he washes those men's feet. Listen to me. He washed the feet of Judas that night. He washed the feet of Peter that night. Right after the passage of Scripture, verse 35, that I read, you read what comes next. Peter is going to betray Jesus. Jesus knows that. He still washes his feet. He knows all of those disciples are going to abandon him. He still washes their feet. He knows the very worst about them. He knows everything about them that you and I might consider unforgivable. He knows all of that about these men. He loves them without limit. He's unselfish. He cares for them. He keeps loving. Do we love each other like this? Knowing, Do we not only know the worst, but do we expect the worst and still decide that I'm going to love this person and that person and that person? Why? Because they're my family. Because Jesus loved me in an unlimited, unselfish way. And has told me to love others in that same manner. The next question. How can I keep it real? How can I keep it real? If this is what Jesus says to do, how can I do this? We lived in South Louisiana for 12 years this time of year, um, they have a little celebration called Mardi Gras. When our kids were growing up, we used to go to the Mardi Gras parades in Lake Charles. I saw Jane here. Jane, where are you? 
Where is she? Hey, Jane. Jane and I used to go to the same church together in Louisiana. She knows about Mardi Gras, don't you? Did you ever die for the beads? You don't have to. You, <laughs> you don't have to admit it, Jane. You know the 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 floats would go by. You know a lot of people have an image of Mardi Gras like you would have in certain parts of New Orleans, and they are not family friendly events in many of those places in New Orleans. They're not. You know, recently the city of New Orleans cleaned out their sewers on St. Charles Street, I think it was, and they got like five tons of beads out of the sewer. It was blocking everything. And uh, they had to get a special government grant to do that. So these are serious business, but they're, they're not real gold beads or fake beads. But to children and the people who stand on those parade routes, this is gold, baby. This is gold. Every year for the Mardi Gras, when the kids were little, we would load them up in the car try to get to that parade route early so we could get a prime location. We would back our car up to the parade and they'd catch some stuff in that trunk. The other ones, we gave them plastic bags and uh, the goal was to fill your bags up. I mean, it's, it's better than trick-or-treating. And they throw candy off those floats and they throw beads and they throw big beads and nice beads and coins and candy and and all kinds of stuff. And the kids are scrambling. We're just trying to keep them from getting crushed under the tires of the, of the floats. I mean, they're diving for beads. They're, they're getting that stuff. They, they love it. We, we did that regularly. We did that every year. We just tried to remember to get the baby out of the trunk before we closed the, <laughs> closed the back. After we left Louisiana, Lake Charles, Baton Rouge, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. In Franklin, Tennessee, they had a Christmas parade. Now, there's multiple parades in South Louisiana, not just Mardi Gras. But whenever you have a parade in South Louisiana, they throw stuff. You can't have a decent parade unless you throw stuff. Anybody's in charge of the parades here, they need to hear that. <laughs> just saying. We lived in Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville, and they had a Christmas parade not long after we moved up there. And so we did what we normally did. We gave out the plastic bags to the kids. We got to the parade route early. They were all ambulatory, so we didn't back the car up and use the trunk. You know, when they throw stuff, it would land in the trunk. We didn't do that in Tennessee. They were all big enough. They had their bags. They're sitting there on the curb. They're waiting. First floats comes by, lots of music, marching bands, all that kind of stuff. They go by. They didn't throw anything. Next, next float goes by. They're all happy, smiling on the float. They're waving. They didn't throw anything. My kids are sitting there like this on the curb. And uh, after about the fourth or fifth float went by and they didn't throw anything, they're looking up at me and said, Daddy, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> now, if you were at a good South Louisiana Mardi Gras parade and they're, they're throwing these beads, you're standing there, even as an adult, man, there's beads that adults, they get serious about really nice beads. They're still plastic beads, but they get excited about the beads. And so you're standing there, you're waiting. You're going to get some good beads, and you're waiting for them to throw those beads your way. And you're, you're going to reach, you're going to catch it up in the air, you're going to do whatever to catch, catch those beads. And somebody comes up to you while you're standing there waiting for that, for that to come by, and they said, I have this gold chain, and, and I am willing to just give you this gold chain. Now, if you were in the throws, I mean, the next float is coming by, and you're all excited about that, you would look at that gold chain, and if you were all about Mardi Gras beads, 
you wouldn't be interested in the gold chain. You say, well, that's, that's fine. My wife has one of those. That's good enough. You're not interested in the real thing. You'd rather have the fake thing. Because that's why you're there. That's what you're excited about. That's where your heart is. You're all excited about the fake one. You're not interested in the real one. Now, you and I just listened to me tell that story. You said, I'd be interested in the real one. But, but seriously, plastic beads. It's not real. It's fake. Oh, we can come in. We can smile. We can act like everything's okay. We can never let our hair down with each other because, heaven forbid, you should really know the truth about me. Because if anybody here knew the truth about me, not only would it be broadcast all over town, but I, I feel like you wouldn't love me anymore. And so we hide, and we're not transparent, and we're not real, because we don't forgive, and we don't practice love without limits, we don't practice love unselfishly, and so we'd rather have the fake beads. But in contrast to that, there is a real kind of life in the body of Christ, that Jesus offers you and me. It's gold. It's the real deal. And that's what I want us to think about today. How can I keep it real? How can I, Jesus says, I want you to love one another. That's real. That's a real command. We'll be judged for that one day. He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. How do I keep that real? How do I do that? Number one, let me give you three steps or approaches to it. This isn't all I could say about this, but this is all I'm going to say this morning. Step one, connect with your group. Connect with your group. You got to show up. You can't do this command from a distance. You can only do it up close. In fact, most of these commands that we find in the scripture, the love one, love one another commands that are drawn out into to serve one another and be hospitable to one another and to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you and all these one another commands require at least one other person in order to do it. You can't do the one another commands by yourself. So, so connect with your group. You can't love from a distance. you got to get in there. If you are not plugged into a group, even at Wynn Baptist Church, you are not helping the problem. You are part of the problem. Wow! Look at how they love each other if you're not here, if you're not plugged in. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm talking about being plugged into your group and being a part of a group of people that you grow closer to over time because you pray together and you eat together and you study the Bible together and you have fellowship together. That's first step. Connect with your group. Step number two. Confess your weakness and his strength. I am weak, but he is strong. Paul says that in Corinthians. But I don't know about you, but I look at this and I think, I can't do this. Love as Christ loved? Just for this exercise, and you may want to do this on your own, it's kind of a humbling exercise. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the what chapter? Anybody know? The love chapter. We read it at weddings, kind of like the way we read the 23rd Psalm at funerals. I don't know why, we just do. And the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, describes love. But it describes love as if it were a person. It's describing the character of Christ. But what if you take the word love out and put your own name in there? I did that. 
Please endure this with me. Don suffers long. I mean, this is the expectation. Listen, Don suffers long, and Don is kind. Don does not envy. Don does not parade himself. Don is not puffed up. Don does not behave rudely. Don does not seek his own. Don is not provoked. Man, I just drove to Memphis and back. Oh, man. Don thinks no evil. I'm not scoring too hot here. Don does not rejoice in iniquity, but Don rejoices in the truth. Don bears all things. Don believes all things. Don hopes all things. Don endures all things. No way! I can't do that. People come to me all the time. Marriage partners come, and they say, I don't love him anymore. All right. So? You never could. I can't, but he can. And what I believe Jesus is making clear to you and me, because this is chapter 13. We studied chapter 15 last fall. You remember that? What it means to abide in Christ? In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Where does the life come from? It comes through the vine and into the branch. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me stays connected to me, and I in him bears what? Much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Can I love as Jesus loves in my own strength? No. Can I, can I put my name in this love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? Can that become a reality in my life? Yes, but not because I do it. But because Jesus Christ lives in me and he lives in each one of you that knows him as Lord and Savior and has received him by faith into your life. The way you received him by faith is the way you are to live this life. By faith. Christ in me can love. Christ through me can love. I am weak, but he is strong. And so some of us, when we find ourselves in that impossible scenario, loving someone that I really don't feel anything for and I don't care for them because of maybe something they've said or done, what do I do in that moment? Jesus Christ lives in my heart. I need to trust in his ability, not my ability, trust in his ability to overcome my inability to love as he loves. And then step number three, cry out for a deep, you got to get his love. Cry out for a deeper knowledge of his love. You got to get it before you can give it. You got to get it before you can give it. You cannot love your brothers as he has loved you if you have no clue how he loves you. You've heard me talk before, some of you have, about what I call an exceptionalism that some people fight or battle in their heart that for whatever reason, because of their past or the experiences they've had in life, they read the truth in Scripture, they believe the truth in Scripture, but they do not experience the truth in Scripture because they believe they're an exception to the rule. For God so loved the world, well, that's true. I believe it. it applies to everybody, but I'm the guy in the corner, and somehow I'm the exception. I don't know if you identify with that or not, but if you're a person who does, you cannot possibly love as Jesus loves until you've experienced something of his love. And the, and the best way to address that problem, 
is to ask God to deepen your understanding of his love for you. Let me give you an example of that from the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 3. And I, I recommend the whole passage. Someday we'll probably study it here as a congregation. But in chapter 14 of Ephesians 3, he, Paul writes, listen carefully. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What activity is he engaged in if he's bowing his knees? What's that? Prayer. So he's praying. Now he's praying for the people of Ephesus. He's praying for the Ephesians. These are people who already know Jesus. They've already been saved. All their sins have been forgiven because they trusted Jesus and what he did for them on the cross. He took all their sins away. They're already Christians. But he's praying for them. What is he praying? Verse 16, I'm, I can't expound the whole passage, but I just want you to see the pieces here. That he would grant you. So he's praying that he would grant to the Ephesians something. That he would give them something. What is that? That you may be fit to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I can know with my mind that Jesus loves me, but there is a knowledge of the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge. Where I know it not as a fact, but out of my experience. Where he has supernaturally taken the truth and applied it to my soul so that it has become a reality for me in my heart. What is Paul doing? He's saying, this is the, the key to you experiencing the fullness of God, experiencing all that God has for you in your life. He said, this is so important, people of Ephesus, that I am praying, I am on my knees praying that God would give you a knowledge of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. I mean, I could think of a lot of things that I could pray for a new church that's facing persecution, that's facing difficulty, that's facing heresy, that's facing all kinds of things in the church. But people, apparently, people who have experienced the love of God are radically different from people who have not experienced the love of God. And so I would say, ask. I would encourage you to turn to the Lord and say, God, I know that you want me to love this person the way that you love them. I understand that. I understand that you held nothing back in your love for me. You gave your whole life for me. And you want me to commit my life to that person. And Father, I know it's true. And I'm asking you to make it a reality in my life. But if I'm going to love as Jesus loved, Lord, I need to know your love. I need to know asking you, Lord, to do a work in my heart. And I'm not talking about a once-for-all encounter with the love of God, although some people in history and personally that I've known and even in my own walk, there are people who could talk to you about some very profound, dramatic times where the Spirit of God has communicated the love of God to their soul. And for you, it may be that dramatic and it may be that powerful. For others of us, it may be like the tide coming in. It just becomes a deep, deep reality in your soul. My Father loves me. And suddenly I begin to do the things that maybe I was doing before, but I begin to do them for an entirely different reason. 
I don't do them now because I have to. I don't do them now because good Christian people do that. I don't do that now because mom and daddy said to do it this way. I do it now because I love my father and I know my father loves me. And I want to please my father. Father. 